Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm really excited today. I'm always excited. I'm excited. I've actually got a friend of mine on, on board today. We are going to chat loads and loads and loads of World War II stuff. Yay. Um, so I've got with us Camilla Damland, who is a Danish conflict archaeologist specializing in World War II Danish naval defenses. Hi, Camilla. Hiya. I am so excited. This is finally, you've been following my work. Now we get to talk about yours. Yeah, which is incredibly nerdy but you know let's do it oh I love archaeology but listen what so guys before we actually got onto this podcast we've been and I thought we should actually record this we've been chatting about the difference between conflict versus battlefield archaeology which kind of falls into into my field as well so military history style kind of thing I don't know talk to us Camilla (laughs) tell me the difference so the original thing was kind of battlefield archaeology. It's, it's, it, it is what it sounds like. It's the archaeology of battlefields. But in the last maybe like 20 years, um, there's been a much wider definition coming out, which is conflict archaeology. Now, battlefield archaeology is a subset of conflict archaeology. So conflict is so much more than just what happens on the battlefield. I mean, A civilians have an experience of of conflict as well but even b for soldiers you know they're not the moments they spend on the battlefield are not the be-all and end-all of their conflict experience there's this whole lead up to to being in battle there's a whole training scenario there's living in barracks there's um adjusting to new life as soldiers and then you know there's the battle sure but then if they're lucky there's an aftermath and that can be you know being wounded what that entails it can be being prisoners of war it can be you know anything and that I think is really important I think it it brings a different aspect and I'm not saying that battlefield archaeology isn't valid or isn't important it totally is um it's just that it's not the be-all and end-all that there's so much more to conflict archaeology than than just focusing on that those brief moments on a battlefield. No, I totally get that. So, for example, in my field, military history, it's not all just about the battlefield experience. I mean, I I totally totally suck when it comes down to formations and this and then. Same. Oh, I just, I can't do it. But when you're talking about the soldiers, you're talking about their experience. Like, for example, during the Warsaw Uprising, I'm so interested about how they lived, what they did, what the women did, how, what kind of role the women played. Then obviously you've got the dark side of it. So you've got the massacres and this, and it all kind of interlinks with each other. And it's really interesting. And I absolutely love that kind of personal experience. So more, I would say more the social side of military history. That's what I prefer. Absolutely. And I mean, I think there's a, there's a push in, even in battlefield archaeology, to focus more on on individual experiences there's certainly people still doing you know movements of armies and that kind of thing but there is a a focus on on very individual experiences as well there's uh one artifact i think it's in a world war one trench somewhere in flanders where you can see that this one soldier has like pushed his ration tin into the sandbag and you know just as he was going over um that kind of 
little experience is, is coming out a lot. And I think that's really cool. Um, but that's still very much focusing on the battlefield. And like you talk, you know, about the social side of it, I think it's really interesting as well. Women's experiences, um, civilians experiences. And I think that's, that's really, really fascinating. Right. Okay. We are not here to talk about our battlefield experiences or conflicting experiences. We're actually here to talk about your research. So uh, let's let's start with the first question because we're going to be talking about Denmark. Uh, we're going to be talking about World War yep. Two. So set the scene for us. First of all, when was Denmark invaded, and what did the invasion look like? Well, so Denmark is invaded on April 9th, nineteen forty, as part of. Uh, Operation Weserübung, which included um, the simultaneous invasion of Norway too, and the, the overarching strategy, uh, strat- wow, strategy, is a simultaneous efficient attack on numerous targets. And the reason Denmark and Norway, or the Danish and Norwegian governments, are given for the invasion is that it's a protection of these neutral territories against an Anglo-French attack. Which I mean, <laughs> accurate, but in reality, like Norway has important all uh, and Denmark because we share a land border I mean a we're an important stepping stone to Norway but because we share a land border with Germany they also really didn't want the allies to have a foothold in continental Europe once they'd been routed from France because that could turn out to be like genuinely fatal it could end up with an invasion they, they could exactly right okay so um I'm trying not, I, I, I shouldn't laugh in this point because it's not funny, but two hours after the invasion, two hours, what happens? Yep. yep, that's when the Danish government capitulates. Um, and it basically accepts an offer of uh, a so-called peaceful occupation. And to understand this, I, I, I need to point out that Denmark is spectacularly flat and has really good infrastructure so this already makes it easier to overrun than somewhere like Norway which has fjords and mountains and stuff Um, but in addition to this the German forces vastly outnumber the entire Danish armed forces at this point so by like 6 a.m. The Germans have taken several vital points like Copenhagen Harbour, the, Sto- the Storstrand Bridge, the, fort- the Fortress of Messner, which incidentally uh, is the site of the first ever deployment of Fallschirmjäger paratroopers. Um, they've taken important airfields and basically it's done. Like there's 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 no coming back from this. Um, the spectacularly ill-prepared military forces have been overrun and the government really at this point sees very little point in prolonging the fight and delaying the inevitable so this offer of a peaceful occupation is accepted and what the peaceful occupation means is that the occupation of Denmark will be purely military so the civilian administration is left in power rather than being overtaken by a German puppet government and this is really really important because the Danish wartime experience is very much shaped by this this the German desire to maintain this peaceful occupation means that the Danish government has so much more influence than you see elsewhere in in occupied Europe. The general conditions for the people are much better um, and as a rule the occupying forces are not as brutal, uh, saboteurs are punished by the Danish police force rather than the occupying power and this means obviously more leniency. 
Um, and this is also why the Danish Jewish population was essentially left in peace until the end of the cooperation policy in 1943. So we had an extensive resistance network in place by the time we had to smuggle Jews out of the country. That's really interesting. That actually came up on another podcast when we were talking about uh, the British setting up a resistance network. And um, obviously, then I had to compare it to Poland because, well, that's <laughs> what you do. Exactly. And um, it's, it's just really interesting because, again, Poland had to start the resistance network then and there, bang on. They had no time to prepare, no time to get anything ready. And it's just so incredible how Denmark had that time to prepare to get themselves sorted. And that's exactly it. Like the, the resistance network is not that strong in the beginning. It's not that widespread but at that point it's mostly just like being an inconvenience to the germans more than you know bombing shit and smuggling jews out of the country that only comes you know mid-war at which point the resistance network has been in place for two years i'm loving it so i've got a really random question do we know what the population was of denmark at the time uh i think it was like four million um so basically yeah, I, a quarter the size of London, right? Shut up. <laughs> Sorry. It's not the size that matters, Alina. <laughs> I had to throw that one in. No, it's actually it's actually really interesting because um when you look at the, the, the population size of Denmark, it's for such a such a big place you've got so not so little people, I think that's the wrong way to say it, but your population is more um not so densely populated. It's what's the word yeah. for it? Um sparsely populated. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Well, and I mean I love how you say such a big place because I can drive like three hours and then I'm out of my country. Um actually where I live I drive one hour and then I get on a ferry to Germany. Um but but yeah, I mean, we have our urban centers and then everything else is just fields and tiny towns. Great. So perfect for resistance. Well, absolutely. And I mean, flat ground also means it's easy to drop weapons, um, except a lot of the places where people with um, the Allies dropped weapons were in Jutland. And there's a lot of bogs there. So if you miss, you just like drown the weapons. It's great. That did genuinely happen. Like, whoops. Yeah. Let's not talk about Jutland. Let's move on very yeah. <laughs> away from uh, from that. Um, well, just because your your grasp of geography isn't that great. Uh, yeah, that I only found out Jutland was in Denmark. What? Oh God, a few months. No. Anyway, moving on very swiftly. <laughs> um, let's talk more specifically about your research. So we've got the background. We know what's happening. Uh, Denmark is under occupation. Right. Let's get to the archaeology stuff. So, um, your research. Tell us, first of all, what is the Atlantic Wall and how does that come into the, into all of this? Well, so the Atlantic Wall is this massive defence network which stretched from the Pyrenees on the French-Spanish border to the very northern tip of Norway, basically a defence system protecting the entire western coast of occupied Europe. Um, it, it Some of the structures are in place from the beginning of the war because it, it, that makes sense. But the Atlantic Wall as a concept has its nascent in December 41 when Hitler uh, issues Directive 40, demanding this construction of this defense system. Um, it's starting to get worried at this point for several reasons. Firstly, the failure of the Luftwaffe to gain air superiority in the spring and summer of 1940, which means the failure of the planned invasion of Britain. Secondly, the failure to defeat the Soviet Union before the winter of 41, tying up 
enormous resources on the Eastern Front. And then finally, the entrance of the US into the war in December 41, which gives Britain an ally. So because so much of the machine of war is tied up in the East, Hitler wants to protect the West with a fortification system on which, and I quote, the Allies could batter themselves to destruction, which is total propaganda because it wasn't nearly that indestructible. So let's talk about, well, why is the Atlantic War so special in Denmark? Well, this kind of goes back to the peaceful occupation Um, So because the Germans want to maintain the state of affairs, they're willing to negotiate with the government or just straight up do things differently. And this means that while Organisation Todt was in charge of the construction of the Atlantic Wall in Denmark, as well as elsewhere, instead of using forced labour, like it was the standard throughout most of the rest of Europe, um, the work in Denmark was contracted out to Danish construction companies. So in Denmark, these structures are a reminder of the war, but they're not connected to this really dark heritage because even though they were built at the behest of the Germans, they weren't built by the Germans and forced labor wasn't used. Um, and they were also never actively used. You know, they were there to protect against an invasion, but that never happened. So there's not really any bloodshed in that sense. And it's not like the occupation of Denmark was known for the bloodshed anyway find that really interesting that there was no slave labor used to construct this and it was all done by local local workers basically yeah and i mean this is this is the biggest uh, construction project in danish history because it employed something like 90 to 100,000 people over the course of the war and like i said you know 4 million people like that's a that's a huge part of of the um, population and it, in the beginning especially before the end of the uh, cooperation policy this was just a this was just a job after the end of the cooperation policy it's a little bit more complex and you there's there's a lot of work being done on collaboration versus cooperation and you know when does one become the other um but ultimately you know this was this was just a this was a construction project okay so what happens well the, clearly denmark isn't invaded so that's a fail. But what happens in Bunker Hill? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Rude? It's okay. Don't worry. Right. <laughs> well, no, it's a good thing that Denmark didn't get invaded, isn't it? No, we want to be invaded by the Allies. Hello? We're oh, already yeah. invaded by the Germans. Yeah. Why are you ever just bombing us? That's all we get out of that. Well, and shipping us weapons, to be fair. Okay, that makes that makes kind of okay. So we want you want the allies to get inv- to get invaded. My God, I can't even talk today. You want the allies <laughs> to invade you. You don't get invaded, mm-hmm. so these bunkers pretty much don't get used. So what actually happens to them after the war? Are they abandoned? They dismantled? Well, I mean, the Germans leave the country after the capitulation on May fifth, um, forty five, and they're basically either driving or walking back to Germany. And in the beginning, you know, everyone breathes a sigh of relief and they want to just get on with life and get out of the shadow of war. And these bunkers are kind of really obvious leftovers of the war, a light on the landscape, a reminder of these dark years and, and so on. And so the initial plan is to blow them up. The problem is bunkers built to withstand a military invasion tend to be kind of hard to blow up. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. Um, so about, you know, as early as July 45, there's a suggestion in the press that these bunkers might be used 
in a mucilized way, at least until they can be demolished. And the point that the point there is that the ideal solution is very much to get rid of them, to remove them from the landscape entirely. At this point, the bunkers are, like I said, a blight on the landscape. They're very much just remains from the wall, um, something you want rid of. The idea to open them up to visitors is a secondary idea to make some kind of use of them while they're there anyway. The intention to demolish them is inherent, even in the suggestion of opening them up to the public. It's very much sort of, you know, until we can destroy them. Um, And it's also done from this perspective of like, these are tourist attractions, they're curios. It's not from a belief that there's any inherent value in the bunkers preservationally. But like I said, they proved kind of hard to blow up, so they never did get demolished. And so time passes and they become more and more part of the landscape. And in the 80s and 90s, there's this suggestion from historians that the bunkers might be used to more actively tell the stories of the war. This is still, at this point, kind of a secondary consideration, like, well, since we couldn't get rid of them, let's actually use them for something. So it's still not really an acknowledgement of any preservational value that part hasn't really changed from the 40s at all but the audience has so they're preserved by accident and now they're useful in framing stories of the war for an audience who didn't live through it you know they're not people who who might have a curiosity about what the germans who have you know been wandering around their their country for four years were up to um it's in, in the 40s there's this intent of showing the off limits areas to the danes Um, Now it's more of a question of communicating a historical narrative. So the 80s and 90s are where you start to see the shift in the discourse surrounding the bunkers. Um, Getting closer to the 50th anniversary of the war, you see less of this perception of the bunkers as symbols of war, of the evil of the Third Reich, etc. You see more of the pragmatic desire to get something useful out of them. On the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Denmark, the bunkers on the West Coast, so the Atlantic Wall, were used in a commemorative project where they strung a line of laser along the bunkers, connecting this massive fortification project and really showing how that whole long line of bunkers is connected. There's a a German who's described it as uh, a string of beads made out of reinforced concrete, which sounds, um, surprisingly, a lot more poetic in German. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, 
So because the bunkers are the only, some of the only tangible remains from the war here in Denmark, they're an obvious choice for this commemoration, even despite the dark symbolism that some in the 90, 80s and 90s still attributed to them. And then it kind of takes off from there. Um, around the 2010s, there's a couple of things happening that show just how much things have changed. Um, a bunker is discovered washed out after a storm, which had previously been completely buried. And all of the press surrounding it is overwhelmingly positive. Um, and you start to see this public idea that the bunkers are worthy of preservation. And then in, in 2013, the Agency for Culture in Denmark decides to demolish about 100 bunkers on the West Coast due to health and safety concerns because water will erode even reinforced concrete and then you just have like rebar sticking out of it. And given that everyone's just climbing all over them, that, that tends to be problematic. And the public goes nuts basically saying that it's negligent of Danish cultural heritage. And I mean, this is despite the fact that there are thousands of bunkers along the coast. Um, but this is just, you know, how, how can they destroy our cultural heritage? That kind of thing. And the work goes on regardless because health and safety. Um, but it really does show that shift in the perception of these bunkers from the blight on the landscape to worthy of preservation. Um, and I mean, they've also been at this point uh, ascribed status of worthy of preservation in the Danish cultural canon. I find that so interesting that uh, they actually become part of Danish culture. Mm -hmm. And that basically what it is, is that the, the public just absolutely I love I think I find that so interesting. I wish more of that would happen uh, around around other parts of Europe and other heritage sites, really. I, I do genuinely think that this is partly because of our wartime experience like I think it's very hard to have that kind of interaction with really truly dark heritage. Um, so the perspective changes how else are these uh, bunkers used? Well because the, the the perspective changes so because the perspective changes um, the bunkers are now considered worthy of preservation and you know in some ways that hasn't changed much um basically the bunkers are open to the public or the, they're opened to the public in 1945 and now they're still open to the public but the point is that a fair few of them have been turned into actual official museums so there's two really big museums on the west coast both created in bunker systems one at Tierpitz, which opened a few years ago and one at Hanstholm, which is absolutely enormous the Hanstholm one shows the whole area the whole local system and it's built to protect the entrance to the baltic from the allies so this is a really freaking big defense system and, and the whole idea from 1945 of allowing the curious visitor to see inside the bunkers has come true, but like to the nth degree, like you're inside the the gun emplacements. It's it's absolutely amazing. They're enormous structures. I love it. I've got to tell you, I mean, we've got so many bunkers here in Poland that my dad took me um, as a birthday present God, a couple of years ago. Now we went and toured. If you're the yeah, I know I'm such a nerd. Northeast part of Poland, and we went to the Wolf's Lair. And what he—I love my dad. He spent so much time on the internet searching for bunkers that were just not—they um, were available to visit, but in the sense that there weren't a lot of people going to them. And we mm -hmm. we spent a week 
just touring around and looking at bunkers and things and God, you have to come visit me like I'll totally take you to the museums but there are thousands of bunkers here like just you just you just walk into them I mean most of them are sanded up so don't be claustrophobic but yeah just go ham there you go ladies and gentlemen if you want to go play with bunkers and you can't find anywhere you live head towards Denmark absolutely or you can always give Camilla a shout on Twitter and I'm sure she'll be she'll be happy to help you um, find <laughs> various different bunkers. I, I, I know for a fact you've gone out there, haven't you? And you've just I, yes. them, haven't you? Yes, it is a recurring joke between my mother and I because she was um, she drove with me on my field work for my dissertation because I have an amazing mother that every time we see any kind of concrete, we just both go concrete because that's what we did when I was doing my field work because they're really hard to spot when they're inland. So any patch of concrete gets exciting when you're a nerd, when you're a really, really big nerd. So how many of these uh, patches of concrete actually turned out to be a bunker? Most of them, to be fair, but this is also because my field work was done on a very, very small island that had like a really strategically vital role in the war so there were a lot of bunkers I love it I love this but so moving on um there's a really official official gosh can't I speak today there's a really official way to use bunkers um so what happens to the rest of them what do people do with them well this is and this is kind of what we were just talking about and this is one of the things that I really love because because there are thousands of bunkers you can't actually like use every single one in an official capacity there's there's no point in turning every bunker into a museum now quite a few of them are um, on the west coast but also elsewhere in denmark um but a lot of the bunkers especially along the west coast are just kind of left as they are they're open to the public for nothing open to exploring or playing on and they've become this really ubiquitous part of the west coast to the point where you see kids like playing on them, climbing on them, running around inside. Um, and they're, you know, partly sanded over, buried in the dunes. So they've become part of the landscape, both figuratively and literally. But even beyond this, the bunkers are at the same time places of commemoration and connection to the wall and just empty concrete husks, like both of those simultaneously. They're covered in graffiti, um, you know, people just tagging whatever they want. They're used to shelter partying youth. They're full of empty beer bottles and beer cans. Um, there's uh, remains of, of bonfires. Um, and they're also used as a framework for narratives of the war both in the official capacity as museums, but also very much just on a casual level. Um, anecdotally, you know, certainly you see a bunch of Danish parents telling their kids about the war, but you also see the enormous amount of German visitors that we have on the West Coast each year. And you see them walking around the bunkers. And my German isn't perfect, but it's good enough to pick up on these parents, German parents, using the bunkers as a framework for telling their kids about the war. And I think that's that's really lovely, um, especially because in the 80s and 90s, there was um, there was this whole argument that it would be important to remove the bunkers because it might make the German tourists um, feel awkward, which I will say was very quickly shut down because, <laughs> lol, who cares? They should not have built them in the first place then. 
Um, but you, you do actually see the Germans interacting with them. And I think that's quite, quite lovely. And also um, some of the graffiti that gets left on the bunkers does connect deeply with the war. There's some anti-Nazi or anti-German bits, but there's a lot of messages of peace and reconciliation. Um, like a peace dub, which it's kind of it's kind of easy, but it's also kind of sweet. The the Judeo-Christian symbol for peace and rebuilding after great destruction. Um, and also just the word forgive scrawled in a bunker in English. And I mean, they're quite shallow and quite facile messages, but because of the choice of canvas, they become intrinsically connected to the wall. So even though the connection that lived through the war is dying out and eyewitnesses to this point in history are becoming ever more rare, we connect the memory of the war to the heritage aspect of it through this interaction. And I, I love that. I think it's, it's, it's really interesting and really um, unusual. Do you know, that's probably the only time I'm ever going to agree with people putting graffiti on uh, something of a type of memorial. I think a type of memorial. Let's run with that mm-hmm. line. A type of memorial, because obviously, you know, you go to other places, cemeteries sometimes, or other places of memorial that should not even be touched. And they're being defaced by graffiti and people carving things into the wall. Um, and people can already guess where I'm heading with this, but I'm not going to mention the name because it, it infuriates me when people do this. Um, but it, I think, yeah, this is going to be the only time that I actually agree with using graffiti in a place of memory or or a place of commemoration. Yeah, completely agree. Right. Okay. You've got to have one of these. Everyone has one of these. <laughs> what is your favourite bunker? That's like asking me to choose who my favourite child is. Um, there are certainly bunkers that have a special place in my heart. Um, there's the first one I ever saw when I was about 12. Uh, on holidays with my granny on the west coast actually um you know at 12 deeply into history and like quietly grave as I walked up to this partially buried bunker on the west coast while my kiss my my kitten my cousin and my sister played somewhere else on the beach um that that was like the beginning of this whole thing um but there's also a particular bunker on the island of Feno where I did my my field work um where somebody has written a poem in German that translates to all time shall pass, all things shall vanish, so forgive and be free. And this is like, this German interaction with a site of the war has really stayed with me. Um, I think it might be easier for us Danes to forgive because we had this much easier experience with the Second World War, Um, but ultimately, this is an interaction between the people and their cultural heritage and their history, which is very tangible and very hands-on. It's not filtered through a museum. It's the simultaneous reverence and irreverence that I really like. Um, the interaction with the structures as remains from the wall, as a framework for the narratives of the occupation, and the way they're just part of the landscape used for graffiti, for parties, for playing on. So I suppose less of a favourite bunker and more of a favourite aspect of the way the bunkers have been sort of assimilated into our heritage. Um, 
But I do also, if you'll allow me, want to leave you with a story that always gets to me. Go for it. One of the reasons the 50th anniversary of the liberation was commemorated with that line of light along the Atlantic wall was to bring to mind the moment which was described by a Swedish poet just after the war of cycling along the coast of Sweden on a spring evening in 1945 and gazing across the sound to Denmark and seeing the lights go up across the sea for the first time since the occupation. Five years of darkness and suddenly light as people ripped down their blackout curtains after the German forces had capitulated and let their lights into the streets. And we commemorate this every year on the 4th of May when the capitulation was announced at 8.33 p.m. by lighting candles in our windows. Oh my God, I, that is that is actually incredibly beautiful and incredibly poetic. I know, I love it. That is, I think I'm going to have to come to Denmark over the 4th of May and um, and experience that because that's just incredible. Please do. And I'll take you to all the fun bunkers. That's, do you know what? A bunker is always fun. And uh, do head over to Poland at some stage because then we can uh, we can go and play in the Wolf's Lair and there's, there's so many different places. And um, there's lots of bunkers on the Polish-Slovak and the Polish-Czech borders as well. Oh, you so. know what I like. <laughs> well, the, the downside is there you've got to really there's nowhere to get there by car so you have to hike up a mountain just to get into the I'm bunker. sorry you, you're, you're describing this as a problem you do realize I hiked across my entire country last year <laughs> see ladies I mean to be right. fair that's like 10 kilometers but you know still it's <laughs> not it's a lot more than that this is what you get when you live on an island in Denmark yes but the, it's not the smallest island though is it no, it's the biggest of the islands. But an island, nevertheless. It's a peninsula, yes. I live, like, really close to Sweden. Like, literally throwing stones throw away. I, well, not quite, but I live, like, within an hour of Sweden and actually an hour of Germany. This is my country, okay? <laughs> it's not big. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, head towards Denmark, where you're going to find an experience of lovely people, good food, and, of course, the most important thing of all, bunkers <laughs> so camilla thank you so much for joining us that was that was so that was brilliant um definitely thank you for come having back, me come back and talk about world war ii uh in the future let's let's do that thing like we will talk about our, a comparison of the polish occupation and the danish occupation that that should be a thing i love it that is that is a plan moving forward thank you okay. so much thank you don't forget that we do exist on patreon as History Hack, and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year, and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you, and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you, and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org. 
where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.